All right, so First John 2, 28, we're going to go through 3, verse 10. Uh, you guys know that the chapters are not divinely inspired. They're just there for our help. So this is one of those instances where that big fat chapter 3 is in the way of the text. We have to read around it. So it really makes it just harder for me because all of a sudden I have to refer to chapter 2, then to chapter 3, then to... Uh, okay, so now that I'm done crying, let's read it. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, he may have, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, or who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Now here he's going to go on a long tirade about not sinning. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Because sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, do not, or little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the very beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so God, I pray that as we continue to go to 1 John, that you bring a confidence into the souls of your children here this evening. An absolute confidence that brings boldness before you, that brings excitement for you, and that just is flushed with passion over you. God, bring that assurance in such a way that it changes the way we worship you without an ounce of timidity or even a moment's hesitation of shrinking back. We want to run in full daylight with you. So bring us there. Through your word's power, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. So tonight, we're biting off a chunk. That's probably our biggest portion of First John yet. And it's because it is the concluding section of the first section we've looked at. Follow me? First John's in three major sections. And the whole thing is telling you how to be assured you're a Christian. So the first major section that we're concluding tonight is that you know you have assurance of eternal life if you love Jesus. And we're concluding that love Jesus part. What it means to love Jesus. So that means next week we move into a section that tells us now a new theme of assurance is that we know we have eternal life if we love others. So 
He's dealing with the Jesus aspect, and we're going to conclude that. Conclude that. Then we're going to deal with not just our relationship with God, we're going to move into the segment of what this means for our relationship with other people. Because it has to translate. The, the vertical relationship moves to the horizontal relationship. So, we're concluding that first part. This is what we've been looking at the whole time. Is what it means to be assured of eternal life by loving Jesus. What does it mean to love Jesus? And of course, we've totally defeated and destroyed and blown up the notions that to love Jesus is simply to accept Him, to be fond of Him, to cuddle Him, to have warm feelings towards Him. I really hope that sounded cheesy, because it is. To love Jesus is so much deeper than that. It involves the entire man, the entire soul, and it follows Him wholeheartedly. So, for example, let's go through our um, review here of what it has meant for us to love Jesus so far. In 1 John 1, we looked at loving Jesus means walking with Him in light, not in darkness. When you sin, you walk in darkness. But walking in the light is walking in an open and honest relationship with Jesus. So that means when I go into the darkness and sin, I'm not going to hide out there and pretend like I haven't sinned. That keeps me in darkness. The way I move from darkness over to light is through confession. It's through that openness with God and saying, I sinned, I messed up, and I need your forgiveness. That brings us back to the light. And that's what it means to love Jesus in that regard. Is you are totally open with Jesus. Because you understand that He paid the price for you and wants you to rely upon Him in your walk. So second, we saw in chapter 2, verse 3, through verse 11, we saw that loving Jesus means keeping His commandments especially the commandment to love each other. If you cannot love your brother, Paul, John says, you cannot love Jesus. He's an extension, your brother is an extension of Jesus. So to love them is to love him, to love him is to love them. The third way we see God to love Jesus was in 3 verse 12, all the way through 17. Uh, sorry, 2 verse 12 through 17. That was simply this. Do not love the world. If you love Jesus, you cannot love the world. Because the world has, you guys might remember the NASCAR illustration, the world has three left turns all trying to keep us from getting to Jesus. It's the desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, and the pride and possession. Basically, if it looks good, do it. If it feels good, do it. If it makes me look good, grab it. Those are the things of the world and they are designed to steer us from Jesus and to keep us in a loop. You go nowhere in the world except running from one passion to the next, over and over, just like the boringness of NASCAR making the same left turn repetitively. I'm just appealing to the general public, Stephen. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> I happen to think it's more than that, honestly. But not Satan's NASCAR. That's horrible. That's, that's really boring. But yet, how many people are stuck in that cycle? So to love Jesus is not to love the world. It's to go straight, always, avoiding those left turns. And then fourth way to love Jesus we saw, this was not last week because we are downstairs last week, but the week before. It's in 2.18 through 27, and that is to abide in the church by believing the true traditions of Jesus. A man strays from the church when he begins to embrace all kinds of doctrines or thoughts or philosophies about Jesus but to abide in the church is to abide in the true Son of God and that we all hold the same beliefs about Him and we all do not create our own idols, but we are worshiping Jesus, conforming our lives to Him. That's to love Him, not your Jesus, but to love the Jesus, the Son of God. 
And so we saw Antichrist are teaching otherwise, and they've gone out from us. And we've all seen people that just totally leave the church. And it's evident why. They do not love the Jesus of the Bible. If they did, they would hang out with us. They would stay with us. And of course, to clarify, I don't mean us alone. I'm talking about church general. So that means Church of the Woods is fine. Calvary Chapel Lake is great. Twenty's Community is fantastic. And all the other ones I haven't mentioned, they're great. I'm a little iffy on the other Catholic church, though. But, I don't know. So, now we come to the fifth final point of what it means to love Jesus. And what John is going to say here, and I think that this is the toughest test of them all. It says that you have assurance of eternal life if you are children of God. If you are children of God. How does that relate to loving Jesus? Well, children of God who love God do what? Imitate God. As children who love their father always do. They are always imitating their fathers. Looking up to him. Walking with him. Becoming like him. So that's what we're going to look at here tonight. Children of God have assurance of eternal life if they imitate God. And that's how you know you're a child. You're an imitator. So those terms are going to go hand in hand with us tonight. So, since we don't want to assume our salvation here, that's, that's the whole point of the study. Since we don't want to assume we're saved, we want to be assured. That means confident, not shrinking back, not doubting. Then we need to find out what exactly a child of God is. So I can know if I'm one. Do not assume you're a child of God. I heard the story once um, while I was working at that terrible attorney service job. And um, there's a lot of professing Christians there. And I mean, I mean, not being judgmental, just pure confessing Jesus. Like, literally, it's all they go is they say him, and then they, they party hard every single weekend. Um, he, he said that his nephew came home one day, and he's like, Uncle, Uncle! Did you know that I'm a child of God? And he said, Yes, nephew, we're all children of God. And I thought, Oh, no. That's not what he meant. We're not... Humanity is God's creation. But to be a child, a born in the family of God, child of God, not everybody... And so we do not want to assume, I go to church, I know God, I believe, whatever, all this stuff, I'm definitely a child. No, 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 we want assurance that I am indeed a child. How do you know? Where's your birth certificate? Show it to me. Obviously, you don't have one. So that's why we need assurance in a more tangible way through the looking at what it is in your life to be a child of God. <sighs> okay, I went way longer on that than I meant to. So, assurance, let's go for it. What does it mean to be a child of God? John here describes three benefits, they're all positive, but then he describes one mandatory qualification, and that's not so positive. That's a hard one, so we'll hit that one last. So first, what does it mean to be a child of God? It means to be born of God, logically. 2 verse 29 says that at the very end. He says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. So... To be a child of God means that you are in a new relationship with God. Your relationship is not like the relationship of the average Joe at RIM, or at your community college, or at your home school. Wait, that's your family. Well, 
I realize I'm dealing with a lot of homeschoolers, so. Um, this means that we've entered into a new relationship with God, unlike other people. So there has to be a transfer. We're all born sons of Adam. How do you become a son of God? See, something has to happen. It's a new relationship with God. The second benefit is that the Son of God is loved by God. Three ones, very obvious. So see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So be a child of God means that you're in a position where His love is lavishly poured upon you. Like you're under the Niagara Fall and the Niagara Waterfall, and you're sitting there getting pelted and hammered and belted. It feels good in this context. So He wants the utmost best for you. And, of course, it helps when you're an imitator of God. The third benefit of being a child of God is that you're united with God. You're in the family, and you're going to stay in the family. Um, look at, like, for example, 3.2 says this. I love this verse. It's wonderful. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know this, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So, you're now a child of God, which is a beautiful position. It does not even comprehend our minds yet what we will be. So if you're a child of God now, which is a good thing, the best position you can be on this earth, a child of God is never going to be abandoned by his father. You're related. You're, you're blood tied through his son. You're not, that's not going to be severed ever, Romans 8. And so if we're that now, what, what are we yet to be? No mind has comprehended, no eye has seen what that's yet to behold for us. All we know is that He will appear and we will be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. So there's something better. So if you're not going to be separated now, John's saying there's full assurance of being something in the future, just like Him. So we're looking with hope and confidence to something else. That's, that's a great benefit of being a son of God. So this... this, this failure and weakness that we have here of always feeling we're coming up short as kids like like we feel sometimes well this isn't true but we feel like we don't always please our father heavenly father um we will one day be perfected perfected in that regard we will please him in fact we do please him but the difference is we're going to feel like we're pleasing him because there's going to be so much unity with him we're going to look like him So those are the three blessings. But here's the mandatory qualification of being a son of God. And that is that children of God are imitators of God. You have to imitate God if you are a child of God. Now let me back up. Me just sitting here saying, I'm an imitator because I'm doing all these good deeds. I helped the old lady cross the street today. I busted some plates at dinner. I'm an imitator of God. Bam. Boom. Done. I'm a Christian. No. You become a Christian, then you become an imitator of God, not to make yourself a better Christian, but to confirm that you are a Christian. Because I can't see your Christian citizenship. So your imitation of God becomes that birth certificate. So that's what we're dealing with. You become a child, you become an imitator. And this is mandatory. If you're not an imitator, we have no proof of your childship. But what, what word would go there? Relationship. Whatever you want to call it. So, how do we imitate God? Blaze through three ways, and we're going to hammer on the last one because it's a hard one. So, 
First, they practice righteousness. We saw that in 2.29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. He's righteous, so you're going to be righteous. You're going to imitate your Father. The point there. That's a positive thing. That's a, that's a progressive thing. It's not just sitting back saying, I'm doing good because I'm not thinking these things or doing these things, therefore I'm an imitator. An imitator does the positive outworking that God does, the righteous deeds, the looking for ways to love and benefit people. Righteousness. Second way, we purify ourselves as He's pure in verse 3 of chapter 3. Everyone who thus hopes in Jesus, His return, that's what it's talking about, purifies himself as He is pure. Because He's pure, you're going to purify yourself. You're not going to be perverted and dirty and polluted by the world. You're going to be set aside and pure for Him. That's one way that we're going to imitate Him. And then the third way to imitate God, John says, is in verse 6 of chapter 3. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of of sinning. So, to be an imitator of God, clearly, in John's mind, is that you do not continue in sin. That's the hard one. This is where you have to make radical severance from old ways of life and prove that you're a child of God. Because I can sit here all I want and do righteous deeds and still sin in my closet. I can conform on the outside to purity and fool everybody. I've been fooled by people who claim they're Christians. You find out later, though, they don't, they're continuing in sin and you find the truth. They're not sons or daughters of God. So this is the one, John clearly hammers on it, those three clear verses, verses 4 through 10. The big chunk of our whole passage is dealing with this. So clearly this is John's goal here, is to say that if you want assurance of eternal life, as a child of God, you're going to be an imitator of God, meaning that you're not going to sin. It's not going to be a practice for you. So this is true for three reasons John wants to say, because, whoa, I'm thinking... What do you mean? I'm human. It's part of my disposition to be a sinner. Who is this John guy? I'm not some like like glorified Catholic saint people burn candles to. It's hopeless for me. Maybe John can do that. He walked with Jesus. In fact, he probably floats on the air. He didn't, but... But he's a real man like us with the same experiences. So we need to see what John's reasoning here is for why we cannot sin. It's it's mandatory here. So let's look at the three reasons. The first is in verse 6 of chapter 3. And that's that children of God do not sin because they abide in Jesus. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now John's pulling here. You guys remember, the whole abide word in the Bible, like just instantly for me at least, pulls triggers to John chapter 15, where Jesus said to his disciples, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me, you'll flourish, you'll have life, you'll bear fruit. But apart from me, if you sever yourself from that abiding relationship, 
You're going to be like that branch broken off. You're just going to wither, dry out, and die and be good for nothing but firewood. That's what John clearly has in mind when he talks about abiding in Jesus since he wrote both books. So the idea behind abiding in Jesus is that you're connected to him in such a way that you're receiving from him everything that you need. So you're dependent upon him. In other words, as Jesus put it, if you're not abiding, you're going to die. You're going to wither spiritually. There's going to be nothing useful for you except to make hell's fire bigger. That's the blunt way to put it. Now, the reason if we abide in Jesus we cannot sin is because if we're abiding and receiving from Him, then we can't receive sin from Him. As verse 5 right above verse 6 says, He says, You know that He has appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. So if in Jesus there's no sin, and I'm receiving everything I need for my Christian life from Jesus, there cannot be any sin in this transaction. So through my abiding in Him, there's going to be no sin whatsoever. What happens when we sin is that we take this abiding relationship and we chop ourselves off of it and we decide to be independent. As John Piper put sin, my favorite explanation of sin, he says that sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. So let me put this in abiding language. You abide in Jesus because you're receiving everything that makes you happy and satisfied from Him. And that's your content there. But sin is the action of severing that abiding to go for something to replace Jesus. Something that makes you happier. That's what sin does. So, the logical conclusion from all this is if we abide in Him, we're not going to sin. So, that's the first reason. The second comes for us in verse 5 as well, and verse 8. says, you know that He appeared to take away sin? Verse 8. Go to the second, like the second sentence in verse 8. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So, children of God do not sin because Jesus came... To destroy the practice of sin. So we can't be practicers of sin. If he came to destroy that and we're doing that, then you're putting yourself at odds with the purpose of Jesus. <laughs> he came it says, to destroy the works of sin, verse 5, and then to destroy the works of the devil, verse 8. I take that to mean the works of the devil is the works of sin. And the works of sin is the works of the devil. The same shebang. So if you are practicing sin, you're siding with the devil rather than siding with Jesus who came to destroy that. Don't stand contrary to his mission whom he came to destroy. That's why he came. So if I'm coming in life and he came to destroy the practice of sin, yet I'm holding on to practices of sin, I'm standing here saying what Jesus came to do, I want nothing of. And that's damnable heresy. So that's a... (laughs) severe reason why children of God do not sin. And then third, children of God do not sin because they are born of God's seed. <laughs> what does that mean? That comes from verse 9, as you might have noticed that weird phrase when reading it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he's been born of God. So, seed and born of God means the same thing. He parallels the phrase of this. This maybe was what? Back in 
February or March, we talked about Genesis 3. So stretch your brains and your recollections for a minute. Back to Genesis 3, verse 15. I think it was on Palm Sunday. So, yeah, that was March. So we did Genesis 3, verse 15. The Proto-Evangelium. You guys might remember this. The first mention of the Gospel, where God... This is right after Adam and sin. They're standing before him all like, he didn't do nothing. And the serpent's slithering along right there. Hee hee hee. I got them to sin. Right, Courtney? And so, I haven't done that in a while. That was fun. Um, inside you. Okay, so. He tells them, he tells the serpent, there's going to be war between your seed, the serpent's seed, who's the devil, and the woman's seed, who ultimately becomes Jesus Christ. So there's going to be war between Jesus and the devil forever. Now, what does seed mean, though? What's Jesus' seed? What's the serpent's seed? That's their offspring. That's their children. So, John's alluding to Genesis 3.15 when he says, you, God's seed abides in you. You become his child. But the graphic picture here is that his seed is placed within your heart so that there's a new nature. So, what this means is that I don't sin, or I, I don't, I, I, I don't sin because I try really hard not to. Like there's this, you know, I'm a Christian, so that means I'm not supposed to say these things and you have this list of things and this is my effort to do these things. That's not the reason we stop sinning. John's saying the reason we stop sinning is because God's his nature, your, your sonship is put inside of your heart so that you now have a nature and a will that doesn't want to sin. Sure, you feel the tug because we're still in our bodies and the weakness of it which is always seized and strangled held by sin but a nature within us has been changed that says I don't want to follow that anymore. So that's why he says you don't sin and you cannot sin because you're of God's seed. You're his child. Your nature is done, redone in such a way that sin to you is hideous. It's the same attitude the Father has towards it. He sent his son to destroy it. Alright, so that's the reasoning behind all of this. Now, I can hear you guys in your heads going, Golly, I knew it. I'm not a Christian. My doubts were confirmed because I sinned. Now, don't think that. Even though I just spent the last ten minutes telling you that Christians don't sin, and there's three reasons why, I'm here now to re erase all that and say, you still sin. These are wretches. And I know it. I see it in your eyes. <laughs> Break your face. <laughs> um, I see you drooling over it. No, not quite that far. But So here's our, here's our question is what happens when I sin? If John says that a child of God imitates God in such a way that he doesn't sin anymore, where's my hope? I don't have assurance that means. To complicate this, some of you might be racing back to chapter 1 and thinking, wait a minute, didn't 1 verse 8 say something like this? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us? And chapter 1 verse 10 said, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar? So, what in the world? 
Not only do we still sin, but John says we still sin. So how come he now says you don't sin anymore? I'm going to answer this by giving you the easy answer first and then the more subtle answer second. The first is notice what kind of what type of sinning John's talking about. The English standard helps us out quite um, clearly here. For example, look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning. So we're not talking about just, oops, I did it again, type of stuff. Stupid I said that. We're talking about habitual, continual practice. Now, what does that mean, though? Because we can start to draw the line and say, I struggle to sin. I don't really want to give it up, but I don't really practice it. I don't really do it that much. It's kind of like this occasional thing. So that's still a little bit vague, although John helps us out there. I think what he has more in mind of is a contrast. Okay? Look at verse 10. This is what it says. By this it is evident who the children of God are. So the point is, I'm talking about sinning so that you know who the children of God are. And he continues and says, um, who the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So he's trying to paint a contrast so that we know whose father yours is. Whose child are you? The devil's or God's? And he concludes by saying, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. In other words, if you're sinning, you're of the devil. So what he has in mind here is a contrast. Now go to verse 4 and you're going to see it. Verse 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This is what I think it means. The children of the devil sin in such a way that John defines it as lawlessness. Like cowboys and Indians. Out in the West, before, you know, where there's like one sheriff and he stood no chance. And that's all he was doing, is trying to defeat the lawlessness. That is the children of the devil. Their sin is conducted in such a way as if there is no law on their life. It's lawless. There's total unashamed rebellion. And they sin without thinking twice, maybe thinking twice, but they continue in their sin, and they in no regard at all have any heart of repentance or remorse for it. Sin is just the way of life. It's what they want. That's the lawlessness. But for the child of God, he sins in such a way that he feels so convicted through law that he wants to come back to God instantly when he sins. He feels remorse. He desires repentance. And rather than staying in that darkness, he desires to come to the light so that he then confesses his sins and comes back to God. I think that that's the difference. So we're still going to sin, but the, added, the, the point is the attitude behind your sin. Is it this lawless desire to sin, or is it this, I'm struggling, but I'm seeking Jesus every day. I'm wanting to abide in Him. I'm praying. I'm in His Word. I'm having a relationship with Him. That's the difference. Alright, so, all of this, is to say that John wants us to have confident assurance when he returns. Look at verse 28. This is that we're going to conclude this here. It says, Little children, abide in him. Remember that means don't sin. Abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence or assurance. 
and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That's what John wants to get here from us. That when Jesus comes, there is no fear. There is pure confidence because you know with full assurance where you stand with him and you're looking forward to that day. I think that that's the meaning of 3 verse 3 where it says, All who have this hope of his coming purify themselves as he's pure. How does a hope purify me? I think that a hope purifies us when we are excited for that hope. For example, when I was a kid, um, I had this great hope, wish, dream, if you want to call that, um, to be a Major League Baseball player. Right, Stephen? Well, at least Ken did. I don't know if you did. And, um, yeah, it will be NASCAR for Stephen. But that was my great hope, my great desire, my great wish. And looking forward to that because I couldn't wait to have that, thinking, I'm going to be it. So what I did in growing up is I adapted my behavior to be fitting to that which I hoped for. So that meant that every day my brother and I would go in the park to play catch or take batting practice or do something baseball. Every night that the Angel game was on, I was watching it. Every chance I had to go to a game, I was there. Baseball was my life. It was I conformed all of my thinking and what I wanted to do to baseball because I was eager to receive what I thought was going to be my future destination. Fortunately, our hope in Jesus isn't like my hope in baseball, which failed. Really? 26? And my arms are like the size of pencils? And I'm short, which is really, I think, what happened. God made me short so I wouldn't become a baseball player. I'm pretty sure of that. But I didn't make it. So, um, fortunately, though, our hope in Jesus is going to happen. And if we're excited about his return, we're going to start purifying ourselves. A part of his return says that we're going to become like him. So we want to become like him now. We're so excited. We want it to come immediately. That's like the idea. Like, like me and baseball, I want it to come now. So I, I started to, to be like it. On the other side, if you're not excited, if you're not hoping, you definitely don't conform to it. Um, this is kind of sad and embarrassing, but it's just the fact that in high school, I was terrified of getting my license and driving myself places. I, I wanted the freedom, but I was scared. I was scared of that. So what happened is, do you think that I got my license the minute I was 16? No. It was definitely not like this hope of mine. So, I avoided it, and I got my license at 18, mostly because I had to, because I was growing up. So, and that's why John wants us to have full assurance of his return, that we don't shrink back, because he wants us to be those who are looking forward to that moment, so that we're running in such a way that we want to experience it as much as possible now. And that's how you stop sinning, is that desire to have that now. So you're finding satisfaction in who we're going to be when he returns rather than who we shouldn't be on this earth. So Father, I pray that you give us that hope and that excitement for your return. Lord, that it be above all else. God, that you confirm here tonight those who are indeed your children because they imitate you, because they do not practice sin. There's no lawlessness in their lives, but, but confession and repentance rules their lives. 
So help us to abide and to find full satisfaction in you, Jesus. Open the floodgates and let us experience the full depth and satisfaction of your love that we would not be those who love the world or anything else. So give confidence and assurance to these students, I pray. In your son's name, amen.